Once you grab your Bibles, I'd love to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. I'm going to read a portion of Scripture. I was going to say up front that I'm endeavouring to preach a slightly shorter sermon so that we can move on to the next part of our, our uh, service this morning, which is the baptisms. The problem is every time I say that, it backfires and goes the other way. So it's going to be a normal sermon, but we're going to gather around the Word as we love to do and allow the Spirit of the Lord to speak to us. So let me pray, and then we'll launch into things this morning. Father, we just thank you for your presence amongst your people. Thank you that you're a God not just of principles, but of presence. You desire us to know you, not just to know about you, but to know you personally. So I pray this morning, Lord, would you open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear your voice. We thank you for the gift of your word that it's a light unto our feet, that it's the lamp to our path, that it is able to pierce through the hearts, bring truth and freedom, and reveal more of who you are. So through the power of your Spirit, Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish all that you desire for the glory of your name this morning. Can we say amen? Amen. amen. Matthew chapter 16, we, the last few weeks, have been in somewhat of an impromptu sermon series, looking at the, the notion of truth in the midst of an age which increasingly is marked by deception, half-truths, partial truths, all of the above, and how it is that we need to keep our eyes on the Lord, allowing Him as our good shepherd and the one who says, my sheep will know my voice, my sheep must know my voice, for I am the only one who can lead them unto life. And we began a few weeks ago referring to this particular passage of Scripture. I want to return there, but I want to take a slightly different tangent and focus on something this morning that the Lord has placed upon my heart for us. Let's pick up the story, Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus is ministering, he has been uh, proclaiming the kingdom, has been mighty and wonderful miracles, of course, there's been great crowds that have begun to follow him. He's gained a level of notoriety, we could say. And it says this in Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. An incredible passage of scripture. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about this notion that as Jesus is ministering, as people are saying many things about him, he takes this moment with his disciples to say, First of all, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're this, some say that you're that, in the same way that today people have many 
impressions and understanding of who Jesus is. Well, he was a good teacher. He was a good philosopher. He was, and then Jesus changes the question, doesn't he? And he says, but who do you say that I am? Not just what do they say about me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as we'll find revealed by the Spirit of God, because that's what Jesus says, he makes his proclamation, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one, the one that we've been waiting for. This Savior that all of the Old Testament had pointed towards the one that we're waiting for, that all the New Testament now lives in light of, that for all eternity we'll live in wonder of what this anointed Messiah would accomplish for us. You are, you are the Christ. And of course, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter, and verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church. And so just to get us up to speed, we looked last time at the fact that this is an incredibly encouraging but insightful and engaging passage of Scripture. Jesus chooses this moment of all the miracles and everything else that have been accomplished to date and would be accomplished during his time on the earth to make such a proclamation on, on this rock. I will build my church. Why, why this? Why not a great miracle that he'd done? What was so special about this particular encounter and moment? And as we uncovered last time, we saw that it was purely for this reason. That from the very beginning, Christianity was a faith that was built on the centrality of its claim to truth. That's what it is. It's not just cleverly contrived stories. It's not some sort of subjective, therapeutic, wishful thinking, good practical principles. It's a truth claim. Specifically, the truth of who Jesus is of who Christ proclaimed himself to be. So the miracles are important, but they were important because they testified to the truth of who Jesus was. The resurrection was of central importance, of course, but ultimately because that proved who Jesus said that he was and what it was that he said he came to accomplish. So that gets us up to speed. And here is what I want to encourage us with this morning, Jesus turns to Peter. Let's go to verse 18 again. On this rock, on the rock of the revelation, this truth claim, he is who he said he is, and that simple reality makes all the difference. He says this, and I want us to read it again. Verse 18, on this rock, here's the first thing, two key things, I will build my church. I will build my church. Who's, whose church is it? Whose church is it? Is it our church? Is it the church that we're building? Is it our ministry? You see, sometimes I think, particularly in the Western church, we lose our way when, through different ways and means, we start to believe this misnomer that somehow it's about us. And sometimes, somehow it's about us trying to find ways to build our own church, our own ministry. Andrew Baker Ministries, it's all about me. You see, Jesus in this pivotal moment, he wants Peter to grab a hold of a couple of things. On this rock, the rock of the revelation of who he is, on this truth that will not fail or falter, he is building his church. 
And in fact, it's interesting, if we read on, there's this, this great moment as uh, Paul is encountered by Jesus. Jesus has resurrected, he's ascended, he's with the Father. And Paul had gone around persecuting the church. And he encounters the Lord on the Damascus Road. And what Jesus says to him is fascinating. Jesus encounters him, he falls off his horse, literally, knocked off his high horse. He's encountering the Lord, this blinding light. Here's Jesus, and Jesus says this. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus is asserting that the church is his. And that an attack on the church is an attack personally on him. See, we've got to be a bit careful, don't we? And, and let me clarify as well, by church, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm not talking about ministry names. I'm not talking about all the trappings. I'm talking about the people of God. This redeemed and called out group of people. A people for his possession. He's saying, they are mine. Literally, to the degree that an attack on my people is an attack on me. So Jesus gives Peter this incredible proclamation on this rock, I will build my church. This is not your church. This is my church. This is my work. I'm going to do it. And he continues and says this, and this is really our phrase for this morning, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's saying, there is no power in heaven or on earth that could ever stop the unfolding of my plan. I'm doing this, and this is a done deal. You couldn't stop it if you tried. And, you know, what I love about that is, this is Peter, who is still pre this little conversation that he has with Jesus at one point, where Jesus says, guys, here's the plan. I'm going up to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. Peter stands up, no, I will not allow it. And Jesus looks at him. He doesn't say, Peter, you, you know, you've missed, missed the moment there. He says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, I'd love to, love to have seen Peter's face. But here's, here's Peter, who literally, Jesus is saying, you've been deceived. You believe the, that's, that's, that's not the way it works. This is the same Peter who, during the trial of Jesus, he's there denying having ever known him. Little slave girl corners him by the fire. Big, bold, brash Peter. Now, I want to be so thankful. I think we should always be thankful for the incredible way God used those early apostles and men like Peter and Paul and all the others. But he's not saying, Peter, on, on you, I'm building my church on this revelation because you're the guy who's going to have it all together. He's saying, through you and in spite of you, here's the reality that you can always come back to and remember. On this rock of revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Whatever comes, whatever mistakes are made through the ups and the downs, here is a certainty that you can hang your hat upon. I'm building my church and nothing is going to stop me accomplishing the greatness and the fullness of my plan. You could not stop it if you tried. So here's my heart this morning. We've been in not just this sermon series, but a few different series this year as we followed the Lord's leading, looking at the surrounding circumstances, trying to 
just unpack a little bit the dynamics that are around us. We've looked at this clash of worldviews. We've looked at where we are, and that's important. It is. We need to be aware of our circumstances and surroundings so that we can be prepared for the environment that we find ourselves in, yeah? You don't grab your ballet shoes and head to the rugby field for a game of football. You just don't. You need to prepare accordingly, just in case that's relevant for anyone here. Okay, so there's any confusion. You need to be aware of and prepared for the environment around us. And we're not in a particularly comfortable environment. It is a little bit discouraging and disappointing at times. I don't know if you caught a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know whether to kind of laugh or cry a little bit at this one, but our former PM, Scott Morrison, was preaching a sermon over at Margaret Court's church in Perth, the Victory Centre. And he preached what I thought was a great sermon. I mean, even that fact, a former PM preaching a sermon at a church. Isn't that great? For all of his faults and foreboils and everything else. So he preaches this sermon, and in the midst of it, he makes his statement, and he says, you know, aren't we thankful that our trust is not ultimately in the government? It's not ultimately in the United Nations. It's in God. A statement that probably most of us would say, amen. Amen. Well, funnily enough, in the last couple of weeks, the radio in particular has got a hold of this particular sermon and message. I don't know if you've seen this. Accused him of being a conspiracy theorist, of making all of these accusations. And it, he himself addressed it on, uh, uh, on radio this past week and just said, you know, it's much ado about nothing. But you know, it's, it's an indication, isn't it, of where we are as a country and perhaps how far we've come. Whereas we still open up each parliamentary setting with the Lord's Prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And yet to actually say that in a church environment, well, that's just completely unacceptable and even wrong. So there is that environment. There are dynamics around us that are important. But my encouragement for us this morning is that there is a greater reality That if we're aware of it, we will never cease to be, not discouraged by what we might see, but encouraged by sometimes things that we need to remind ourselves of and recognize. There's another narrative that's playing out. There's a greater narrative, and that is the narrative that is our hope, our focus, and our joy. And it's centered around this simple reality as Christ proclaims Peter, on this rock, I'm building my church. And there ain't no powers in hell, there ain't nothing that's going to stop me from accomplishing and achieving that particular end. Just come really quickly over the Gospel of Mark, I want to set this up, share a couple of things, and then we will bring it to a conclusion. Mark 1.15, Jesus rewinding now to the beginning of his ministry, chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 14. It says, after John, being John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Here it is, the gospel, this proclamation of good news. What is it it centered around? Verse 15, he's saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Some translations say it's present, it's here, it's within reach. That's his his, his point is, it's not just coming, it's not just in the by and by. It's not 2,000 years time. He's saying the kingdom of God, it's here. This, this, this is it. The fullness of the time, that promised king who would bring and usher in a kingdom is here 
So therefore, repent and believe in the gospel, in the good news. Now, we could unpack that a lot, but for our purposes this morning, here's what I want us to grab. Central to Christ's proclamation of the gospel was this notion of a kingdom. It wasn't just philosophies like, I love Matthew 6, we've been in there a lot this year, you know, these incredibly practical, love your neighbours and you know, do not be anxious, trust in it, like incredibly wonderful, practical teaching for us. But central to Jesus' ministry was not just philosophies or practicalities, it was a kingdom. He was proclaiming a kingdom. Now, a kingdom comes with a rule, a reign, a dominion, and authority. He was heralding that a new age had dawned. A new era was here. It's not a proclamation of what people needed to do. It was a proclamation of what this king would accomplish. He was coming to reign. He was coming to save. Establishing that reign through his dying and his rising again. This is what the Old Testament prophesied. Isaiah said, the light would come in the midst of the darkness. That that was what he was. He was this great light that would come to illuminate, like flicking the light switch on. Nothing looks the same again. This kingdom that scriptures prophesied would wage war on the powers of darkness. As the New Testament proclaims, it would take captivity captive. That would deliver sons and daughters from the bondage of sin and death. This king who, as he stood up and proclaimed in the temple what he had come to do, he said, I've come to bind up brokenhearted. I've come to bring healing and wholeness. I've come to set free those who are oppressed. This kingdom with a greater reality, a greater truth, and a greater assurance than any other. And here is the the mind-boggling, incredible thing. He then says to his disciples, and now as you pray, you pray it. Lord, let your kingdom come. He invites us into this incredible mission, this incredible reality of who he is and what he has come to do. So for 2,000 years, we've seen this play out. And I know, as I said, there there can be a sense of discouragement, particularly in the West, about the way things are going, particularly when they pertain to the church. But here's some interesting statistics. This is from a particular report I saw only this week, although it came out earlier this year. The status of global Christianity 2022, an annual statistical overview of global Christianity put out by the Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Bit of a mouthful. If you're interested, I can give you the link and details later. And it pointed out a number of fascinating statistics. In fact, its opening line is this. It says, particularly in the West, it can seem like secularism is growing and people are leaving the church and the faith. However, globally, it's the exact opposite. It's not the case at all. And this report details the incredible spread of the gospel in Asia and Africa and the Middle East. Asia alone, it said, by middle of this year, is estimated to have around 400 million Christians which is now between 15 to 20% of the global Christian population. Nearly, nearly a quarter of global Christianity is now moved to Asia. Africa, the growth rates there are, are even higher. The Middle East, there's incredible things happening in the Middle East. I got a, uh, I've had a, an email and a couple of texts from a good friend of ours, Andrew Scarborough. Who remembers when he was with us earlier this year? Just an incredible guy real passionate evangelist heart 
And in fact, I talked to him probably a couple of months back now. He, uh, he's based down in Melbourne, but he said to me, I've had this desire and this year for, for my birthday, I'm going to get everybody to give money so that I can go and preach the gospel in Kenya. So that was his desire. And he managed to raise enough money. He got a team together and off he went. He's just finished his time there. I think they spent about four weeks and lined up as he does. If ever you hang around him, like he's come and, and, and done quite a bit of ministry with us, with us here and taken kids out on the streets. And he's that sort of guy. You know, you're a little bit nervous around him. But every single person he bumps into is an opportunity to present the gospel, to point someone towards Jesus. So they've been traveling through schools and churches and just in the street. And he, he said to me, he, he, he sent through an email and said, look, just an update. Over the month that they spent of ministry, they had, and I don't know how he gets such a precise number, we can ask him next time he comes here, but they had 96,151 decisions. I think he must have a full-time counter, I don't know, trying to, trying to count and keep up the... And of course, we tend to be a bit pessimistic sometimes, don't we? We're like, oh, he's probably exaggerating, like, are they really counting... Five, five fingers. But he's, he's very good at trying to be accurate and, if anything, underestimate. And you could sense his excitement if you've been following along on, on, online. He's like, it's, I've never seen anything like it. Like, there is an openness to the gospel. The gospel's spreading. Another guy that I don't know personally but has been ministering in Pakistan for the last 10 years, just this year, has said, we've seen an explosion of the gospel like we've never seen before. They're estimating up to a million people this year in Pakistan, who have received Christ. And one thing that excites me, I mean, there's been lots of reports on this, but has, has been the amount of gospel spread that's happened in Middle Eastern countries over the last 20, but particularly the last 7 to 10 years, where previously, and in some cases, there still are complete closed doors to the gospel. It's a guy by the name of David Garrison, and he had a, a mission work reaching out to a lot of these um, Muslim countries and had heard about some of these things going on. So he decided to do a study. And what, what he wanted to was to define what he would study. He was going to study movements, not just individual conversions, and defined a movement as at least a thousand Muslims coming to Christ, and not just coming to Christ, but being baptized, because that was a proclamation in those particular environments of, um, that could cost them their lives and their social status if they were publicly uh, willing to be baptised like that. So he set out, and you know, th this is what he did, he, he went to investigate, travelled a quarter of a million miles, he visited 44 of these movements in 29 different countries. And his conclusion was this, this, this is his summary, summarising a whole book into one sentence, he says that historically unprecedented Muslim movements to Christ were taking place. Historically unprecedented. He first published some of these results back in 2014. There's a book, if you're interested, it's called A Wind in the House of Islam, and he updated it just last year, 2021. And what's fascinating to me as I read through and looked at some of his research is not just the, the incredible analysis of what Christ is doing in those countries, but he said there's one repeated phrase time and time again as he interviewed these particular movements. And it was this. It wasn't that some church had come in. He said, there is that. There's, there's more resources and, and Bibles, that, you know, groups that are able to get the Word of God into these places. But he said, one phrase that always struck me time and time again, anywhere you go, was, well, Jesus just appeared to me. I just had a dream. Jesus was... He said, time and time again, there's this supernatural spread of the gospel. 
It's Jesus accomplishing what he said he would do. I will build my church. There's no hindrance to him in the way that he can reach people. See, the darker it gets, the more supernatural the church gets. I hear a lot people say, ah, it feels like we're living in Babylon. Heard that phrase? We're living as the exiles now, the, the few, the chosen, the minority, particularly around where we live, where it's different than even other parts of the country. My response to that is, well, praise God. Because look at the nation of Babylon. It took how many people? Four that we read about. There's presumably the others. Four that God got a hold of. Four righteous people filled with the Spirit of God that he used to turn upside down the entire nation. God is not limited by circumstances. He's not limited by the impossibilities that we see. He has a commitment and he calls us to get caught up in this incredible kingdom that he said he will build and that no power will come against. So I want to conclude this way just as the worship team comes back up because I think it's easy to hear these stories and we think, well, that's just Africa, that's Asia, that's these anointed people that some of them we know, some of them we don't, that God would call to special places and special times. That's just, you know, Babylon, it's unique. And Peter stood up when the church was born, Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit's pulled out, the birth of the church... There they were, just 120, this sermon that he preaches and proclaims. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't get up there and say, well, guys, good news, this is the Holy Spirit, but make you're being poured out, this is the birth of the church, but make sure you make the most of it now. Because it's all downhill from here. This is the high watermark. By the time you get 2,000 years later, well, it's, you're virtually dead and buried. So hide away somewhere and wait for... The apocalypse. You know what he says? He gets up there in the midst of that moment and he says, this is just the beginning. We're just warming up. We're just getting started. And this gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth as a witness. And then the end will come. So here's the question and I'll give you a title as we finish. Better late than never just to make it official. Here's the title for the sermon. Are we living a victorious ecclesiology? Are we living a victorious ecclesiology? Or we could ask it this way. How victorious is your your understanding of the church? What is it as you look around at circumstances, the situations that we see? Do you see defeat? Do you see discouragement? Do you see hopelessness? Well... Let's throw in the towel. Or do we see a tomb that is empty? Do we see a grave that is overcome? Do we see the chains of sin that are broken? Do we see a king who is alive, a kingdom that is established and this truth that echoes through the ages of a king declaring, I'm building my church and nothing is going to come against it and hinder that plan. And my prayer is that we would see that, that we would position and posture our lives around a victorious ecclesiology, that we get to be a part of this kingdom. That's what he's saying. Come and pray that. Let your kingdom come. 
that we get to be a part of seeing broken lives restored. That we get to be a part of seeing prodigals come home. That we get to be a part of seeing captives released and set free. We get to stand here and celebrate as a family says, man, we're in a dark night of our soul and there's Jesus. He just opened my eyes and I was reading the word and he revealed to me his truth and now we're just sold out to him. We get to celebrate as seven people today, they go into the waters and then come out resurrected in new life. That's the picture. That's the proclamation. The old is gone, the new is come. What a kingdom it is that he invites us into. Are we excited? <laughs> Can we stand? So I want to pray for us this morning. I want to pray that God would move us from defeat and discouragement. That he'd move us from a posture of opposition, of just bracing for what's coming to a place of opportunity. That it move us from a place of being overcome and feeling like we're oh, trampled over to being the overcomers. That we would pray with faith, with joy, and with purpose what he taught us to pray. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. So I want you to close your eyes. And particularly this morning, I had a sense, Hebrews 12, 12, it talks about Strengthen the, the feeble hands. The New Living, I think it says, get a fresh grip and stand up straight. Strengthen the feeble hands. The drooping, the drooping hands, the feeble knees. And I feel like that's what the Lord, the invitation from the Lord this morning, that He would strengthen, that He'd cause us to get a, a firmer grip on who He is, on His purposes and plans, that He'd cause us to stand strong, that He'd infuse us with His joy, joy of knowing Him, that that joy in turn then would become a fresh proclamation. So if that's you this morning, just encourage you, whatever way you might like to receive this prayer, you can extend your hands, you can close your eyes. But I want to pray for that strengthening, fresh perspective, for discouragement to go, for fresh joy to grab a hold and bring a stability. So Father, that's our prayer this morning, Lord. I ask for just a, a reminder of the reality of who you are. That where we've lost sight, that where we've lost perspective, that where we've been more aware of the stuff around us than we have of your incredible promise, the joy of partnering with you, the greatest gospel, the greatest message that will ever be proclaimed, this kingdom of joy and peace, this king, his reign and rule still setting people free, still healing, still delivering, still binding up broken hearts, still reaching in and rescuing and saving all who would turn to Him and call upon His name. Lord, move us from discouragement. Move us from that place of being overcome to being the overcomers. 
Just pray specifically, Lord, that where there's stuff hanging around that's not of you, where we've let discouragement not only come knocking on the door, but we've opened the door and let it come in and settle. That where disappointment has grown up just a well of bitterness within us, Lord, I see you just uprooting. I see you removing the weeds. And I see you just planting fresh seeds of hope. So come bring your hope, I pray. God of all hope, fill our hearts with fresh hope. Fresh hope. Come strengthen the feeble knees. Cause us to grab a fresh grip and a hold of you. Give us the grace to let go of whatever it is we need to let go of. May we leave this place this morning with a refreshed and renewed, victorious ecclesiology. This church that you're building and nothing's going to stop. You're inviting us in to see that come to fruition in our time and our day. We pray in Jesus' name.